Mostly on this channel, we talk about the discoveries made by scientists, but occasionally we talk about science itself and what is the process that scientists go through to be able to find their discoveries. It's more of a philosophical question. And you've probably noticed recently that science is under attack by many fronts. There is a just general distrust in science that is happening. And there are a million causes to this. Uh, we can point fingers in all kinds of directions. But my guest today is Dr. Paul Sutter, and he feels that scientists themselves have some responsibility in the place that we find ourselves in. And he recommends some sort of specific things that scientists can look at to try to fix these problems from their side of the situation. The new book he's got is called Rescuing Science, and I've had a chance to read it. I really enjoyed it. And I think you'll enjoy this conversation with Dr. Paul Sutter. Paul, it's great to see you again. Oh, it's so good. It's been way too long. I know, I know. And this is a funny situation because you, it feels like five years ago or so, I'm not sure when you actually started, you're like, I got a book and I don't know what to do with it. I just I <laughs> had to get all these ideas out of my head yeah. and I have to gestate on this for a while. And you weren't even sure this book was ever going to come out. I was not. I actually, uh, it was about five years ago when I first got the seed of the idea for the book. And then I wrote the first draft in a sprint in the summer of 2020. So peak COVID summer. Uh, as I was watching in real time the uh, erosion of distrust between science and the public. And so I, it just, I'm like, okay, like this is it. Also, I have nothing to do because everything is closed. So I might as well like sit down and, and then like two months, I think, two or three months, I just blazed through the first draft of the book. Sent it around. I had my agent send it around. It, it's been with uh, the the publisher that is publishing it now is the third publisher that has uh, handled this book and worked with this book. Right, um, with tongs and hands it over to the next. Yeah. yeah, with with gloves, you know, oven mitts on, and because it's it's spicy, it's a spicy yep. book. It's been through a lot of revisions, mostly minor. I mean, the the main content of the book remained totally unchanged. Um, but it it's been an adventure to get this book out there and you're right there was there was serious chunks of time where i thought this thing is never going to make it to print i will just self publish it uh, i'll put it on my website or something but no we have a publisher roman littlefield took up the challenge we we have a publisher it is out there it is coming out march 5th of 2024 so what is the gist? What are you arguing? <laughs> what I am arguing is that I am observing a breakdown in trust between science and the public and big chunks of the public. And I don't know how to fix the public. I don't know how to change someone's mind. I've, I've never been very good at it. I don't know what to say to someone who has decided that they are anti-science. I don't know what to say to them to change their mind, but what I do know how to do is be introspective and look inwards and ask, is there anything we could do differently as scientists and as a community of science supporters, as fans of science, is there anything we can do to increase our trustability and from there, hopefully garner more trust and more funding, funding and make science a beloved institution that can last for generations? So you focus on a few fairly large 
categories. I think there was six, seven. Seven, uh, yeah. Seven large categories. I see. That's right. That's why the seven deadly sins exactly. reference you made near the end. Okay. All right. Yes. All right. But, you know, let's let's sort of go through them a little bit. The first one you described as fraud. Um, how, you know, how, what is the heart of this? Yeah, the heart of this is a, an, an academic culture. And when I talk about science, there, there are many aspects of science. There are many different kinds of people that do science. Um, I'm mo mostly focused on fundamental research in science. I'm talking about university scientists, uh, publicly supported scientists doing the most, the deepest kinds of research there is. There are many other scientists employed uh, in industry and, and pharmaceutical companies and in working for the government. And that's a different kind of science that I talk about in the book, but I don't focus on. And in academic research, there is this phrase, which is publish or perish. You must publish papers and you must publish a lot of papers starting at a very early phase in your career and continuing. If you want to get into grad school, you need to publish. If you want your PhD, you got to publish. If you want research positions, you got to publish. If you want to get become a faculty member or a research scientist, you got to publish. If you want tenure, grants, promotion, the whole thing, you have to publish. There's this culture where we expect scientists to publish not just a, a little, I mean publish a lot. And this number blew me away when I first encountered it last year in 2023. Can you guess? I, I love asking my, my interviewers this question. Can you guess how many scientific papers were published worldwide in 2023? I'm going to guess 500,000 to a million. 500,000 to a million? It's uh, 5.1 million. Five, five million. Point, in 2023, there were yeah. over 5 million scientific articles published. Yeah. We are in there are 30,000 English language journals in the world. We are publishing way too much. This pressure to publish, one, is making it so that there is so much useless research being published. Like there is a lot of just poor quality research. Uh, uninteresting research, not fruitful or interesting or, or, or a boundary pushing research. We're just publishing for the sake of publishing. And we're creating the culture where fraud can thrive. Uh, retractions are through the, through the roof. Uh, suspicion of fraud. Um, there's There's been anonymous polls uh, taken of scientists. Uh, when scientists are asked, Hey, have you ever uh, like fudged the numbers in your paper? Somewhere around 25% admit to fudging their numbers in their paper. When asked, like, have you outright lied and fabricated results? Uh, a handful of a percent, like less than 5% admit to it, which is way more than it should be. And then when you turn around and ask, uh, what about your colleagues and your peers? Like, have you encountered instances of fraud and personally witnessed it, even but not participated in it? Um, it's over three quarters. So three quarters of scientists have witnessed fraud in publication research. And what this is creating is a culture where the public um, has a hard time trusting science because actually sometimes we do lie. Sometimes our papers are fake. Sometimes our papers are not real. Sometimes the numbers are fudged. And 
we aren't doing a very good job at policing it. We're not doing a very good job at guarding against it because anyone who has the qualifications to judge against fraud, which is other scientists, are just too busy publishing their own papers in the first place. And so we're not catching it, we're not spotting it, and we're not squashing it like the cancer that it is. We are allowing it to happen. We are permitting it to happen. And so, of course, the public sees scientists are, are becoming untrust, uh, distrustful of scientists because we are sometimes lying and we're mm. getting caught doing it and we're not doing much about it. And I mean, that publisher parish, I mean, the entire industry is focused. Like if you look at all of the things you do as a scientist, none of it matters except for the number of papers you publish in high yeah. quality journals. Yep. That if you publish, if you show up in Nature a bunch of times, then nothing else is relevant. And that's really all people are looking for when they hire you as a scientist. Absolutely. When I was a junior scientist, when I was a graduate student, a postdoc, I would ask every single senior scientist I encountered, what can I do? What can I do to increase the chances of me getting a job? The answer without fail every single time was publish a lot of papers. I am not kidding. That was every single advice. The yeah. only piece of advice I ever got. Yeah, not not do good science, not not <laughs> discover something really interesting. No, not it was write papers. Write papers. Yeah, yeah. Write papers. And in in and and everything like just feeds from that. Like whether you get a if you've got a lot of high profile ones, then that's great. Mm -hmm. If you don't have a lot of high profile ones, maybe you're not right for this job. Yep, and exactly, and yep. even that pressure to write high-profile papers, that means big impact, big statement, you know, going for gold, you know, final pass during the Super Bowl, like like go big, but that itself creates a feedback, feedback mechanism where if you have a marginal result or a, an uninteresting result, you might be tempted to juice that result a little bit, to make it a little bit more interesting, a little bit bigger. Maybe you find a way to uh, shrink those error bars a little bit more so you can make a bolder statement, and that itself causes fraud. And you think about like the, the vast majority of of research that is done leads to a null result that you were hope maybe this is the way. Nope, that wasn't it. Maybe this is it. Nope, that's not it. And yet, the so the vast majority of papers should be, we looked for something and we didn't find it. And so we had to reject the idea. Yeah. You don't see those papers. The vast majority of papers are, we looked for something and hey, look, we found it. Isn't that funny? At a, a 2.8 sigma confidence level, right on the edge of a publishable result. And, and because we don't celebrate null results, because they don't garner... You, uh, like a publication in Nature in a big high impact journal, a null result, even though that's such critically useful information, we tend to bury those kind of when we do that work, we get a null result and it just goes in the drawer. We don't publish it or we get tempted to keep working on it and keep massaging it and keep nudging it and force it to be a publishable result. Right. So, so kind of incentives that are pushing uh, more publishing, less null results, and and, and, so and on. just so less, less fact fact checking, less uh, integrity in the research and publication process. So, what's the next sort of cause that you have identified of uh, of a lack of trust? Is is ironically like there's a flip side to this um, this 
uh, pursuit of high impact uh, publications, which is the funding side of things, which is our uh, the grant process. The vast majority of fundamental research done in the United States is uh, funded by national agencies like NASA, the National Science Foundation, National Institute of Health, Department of Energy, and so on. And this is a model widely adopted worldwide. Grant applications and grant funding decisions are actually incredibly risk averse. If you have a crazy idea, if you have an interesting idea, if you really want to push in a new direction, you are highly unlikely to get your research funded. Instead, granting agencies, funding agencies tend to prefer programs or projects or proposals that are like what you've done before with a tiny little twist or a tiny little advancement. And we see that even at the biggest scales, like the biggest particle accelerators, the biggest uh, biological laboratories, the biggest uh, observatories. These are all what we did before, but we're just going to keep doing it. And so I believe that this leads to a lack of trust because science promotes itself and scientists promote themselves. People fall in love with science for the cutting edge work, for the crazy ideas that may not pan out, the creative thinking about the universe and problem solving and, and striking out into the unknown and coming up with a crazy idea. And that is simply not what gets funded. Instead, it becomes an institution where the goal of science becomes securing the next grant, making sure that the money doesn't stop. And so we become, we have become incredibly risk averse across many disciplines where we are very afraid of funding risky projects. And so it's science becomes like not very interesting and science becomes very dull and not engaging. And it's seen as just yet another thing that the federal government funds amongst its many, many other things, and not as something special or unique that speaks to all of humanity. And you can see from the perspective of a scientist who has a family and is attempting to just make sure that they can put food on the on the plate, that, that if they want the best chance at getting the grant, they're going to propose the research that has the likeliest chance of yep. getting funded. They've got uh, they've got students that they have to continue mm -hmm. employing. They have research assistants. There's all of this infrastructure. And the more successful you are, the more pressure there is to maintain this you know, this group that continues Keep to the do this, this work. Yeah, Keep the machine going. Yeah, um, absolutely. And that, that is because we have set up the culture where this is the expectation. We have set up uh, like the people who decide who get scientists, which scientists are awarded with grants are other scientists. We all sit on each other's review committees and we have decided that this is the best path forward because we have trained the public and trained, especially policymakers that science should be a safe bet that we, that uh, failure is not an option that we are going to do. Look, we had these measurable impacts and we reduced this uncertainty. We had this achievement. Now we're going to do it again. And that's an easy sell to policymakers. But I think that's because we haven't properly communicated to policymakers and to the public the true value in science, which is full of blind alleys, full of mistakes, full of wrong ideas, because how else do you explore the unknown? 
And so it's like you're led into these cul-de-sacs. Yeah. And then we, there's all these other traps. places. Yeah. 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 What's next? <laughs> What's next is um, honestly the lack of careers. And this is something that is not talked about nearly yeah. enough, which is – uh, we encourage young people to go into science, to go into STEM, to get STEM degrees, to become scientists. And it breaks my heart. It really, this one really hurts me when people, when kids come up and say, how do I be an astrophysicist? How do I be an astronomer? You know, how do I be a scientist? Or parents come up, like my kid is interested in science. What do I do? I have to be honest with them, which is that there are essentially no jobs. To give you some measure of what's going on here, for every 10 PhDs that we produce in the United States, there is one open faculty position. So for every 10 PhDs that we produce, the majority are not going into science. They do not end up in careers in science. Roughly a third of them, at the time they get their PhD, this is according to the National Science Foundation, uh, roughly a third of them have no plans. They have no job. They don't even have a job lined up. And these are our best and brightest people. The good news is that a lot of these people, most of them do end up in very fulfilling and fruitful careers because the skills you gain in uh, science training, especially in graduate school, problem solving, analytic thinking, abstract thinking, you know, being able to work under deadlines and with pressure, with complex tasks, like these are incredibly valuable skills. So the good news is there are jobs out there for people with PhDs in the sciences, but it's not doing science. Yeah. And there's a lot of people that I talk to who are like in the computer industry, they they work at Google and are doing machine language, machine learning algorithms and so on, but they're trained as an astrophysicist. They have a PhD in astrophysics and couldn't secure a career in that. And now they're, you know, they, ha they have a fallback job of yep. a high paying career at a large, you know, you know, fang, in, you know, entity. Yeah, ex exactly. Facebook, et exactly. But, yeah, yeah, but that's not what they wanted. That wasn't the plan. The plan that was the to plan. study dinosaurs. The plan was to yeah. understand the nature Look of the Look at the cosmos. stars. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's okay. I'm going to say it's okay for us to have a lot of graduate students. It's okay to have a lot of uh, bachelors. I'm fine with there being a lot of uh, physics and astronomy and biology and chemistry PhDs out in the world. But we need to be absolutely clear to them from the very beginning about the realistic career prospects. And we need to retune our graduate and undergraduate programs so that this is the default expectation that you will not end up in a job in science. We, instead, we're going to train you to have awesome skills. You're going to learn a little bit about the universe. You will participate in some cutting edge research, and then you will go with our support and blessing out into the world and make the world a better place. That is not the message you get. You can look at any physics. Uh, and and this, this does vary by field. Some fields are very aware of this and very proactive about it. You know, my fields of physics and astronomy are not proactive at it at all. You can go to any departmental website in physics and astronomy. You will find almost no mention of careers in industry. Also, the most telling factor here is that I am not aware of a single graduate program in the sciences that tracks 
what their graduates do post-graduation and reports that and measures that and makes that publicly available. I am not aware of a single program. I could be wrong. There could be some out there, but I have not encountered a single one. So you have to ask, you know, usually colleges, universities are very proud of what their graduates do, the accomplishes, accomplishments they make, how much money they make. Their this is not mentioned by graduate programs in the sciences. And I have to wonder why. Mm. Well, it it does feel like there is a, you know, you talked about like postdocs, that there is a group of people that are working for incredibly low wages doing the sort of the, the grunt work that is required mm -hmm. to progress a lot of science with the carrot in front of them that if you put in this time, you put in this work, you're going to come out the other side and you're going to get a career in a you're going to be a scientist. You're going to get tenure. Yep. This is what this is the track. This but is the it. reality is is that is it's the one in ten. So in fact, they're delaying that that reality and exactly being told where they should be going. And I call this phase uh, the career the gauntlet, where you go through undergrad, you work for five to seven years to get a PhD, and if you want a career in fundamental research science, you have to keep going. Typically, almost all fields incorporate something called the postdoc, a postdoctoral research position, which is a short-term two to five-year appointment somewhere else where you work for somebody else, get paid you better than a graduate student, but not nearly what a, a tenured faculty will, will make, then you might have to do it, do it again. In some fields, you have to do it a third time. And then you're finally considered uh, appropriate to even apply for a tenured position. And then in those positions, you have a five-year window typically to prove yourself, especially in research. You have five years to prove yourself, and then you get tenure. But by the time you are even applying for faculty positions, you're in your early 30s. You are hoping to like have a family, maybe own a home, have kids. Uh, but instead, you are moving every two to five years, several times in your life before you can even be considered for a faculty position. And even then, you are not guaranteed to have that job. There are many top tier institutions that have a horribly evil practice. When they have one faculty opening, they will hire two people on the tenure track, knowing that only one of them will end up making the cut. So it's like Thunderdome in there, like, like intellectual Thunderdome. You know, two scientists enter, one scientist leaves. And uh, this is like considered a standard and healthy practice. And so, of course, it's toxically competitive. Of course, people stab each other in the back. Of course, what you're not, you think you're selecting for the best and brightest scientific minds, but really you're selecting for people who are willing to deal with all the BS. And that is a different set of skills. So ironically, we are taking the smartest people, the Einsteins, and they are looking at this and saying, there is no way I am putting myself through that. I'd rather go work on Wall Street or Silicon Valley or start my own consulting firm and make five to 10 times the salary and work a normal job and have a family in a home. So uh, there's this perverse set of incentives. And I believe that this is leading to a lack of trust because we are outright lying to people. What's next? 
<laughs> uh, what's next is is a very, very tricky topic, which is the politicization of mm. science and the role, examining the role that science plays in politics. Because in the United States, we are in a situation right now where one, the overall trust in science uh, has dropped, this is according to Pew Research Polls, has dropped by nearly 20% over the past three years. When you compare pre-COVID to post-COVID, we have lost something like 17% of Americans when they come to trusting science. And the largest fraction of that drop comes from Republicans, comes from conservative-minded uh, people. And so what we are starting to see over the past several years is an attachment of science, and not just specific avenues of science or research topics, but science as an institution becoming more and more attached to the Democratic Party. Part of this is um, a, short, a, a response to short-term survival because the past few Republican administrations, most notably the administration of Donald Trump, has proposed lower budgets for NASA and the NSF and the NIH and has wanted to like close NOAA and meteorological, you know, you know, that has taken a stance of trying to reduce public spending in science. And so the natural response to that is to, okay, if one party is seeming anti-science and another party is seeing pro-science, then maybe I should align myself with the, with the pro-science party and support democratic initiatives, support democratic candidates, uh, and be more closely tied to that. The worry I have with that is that that is a short-term gain, um, but we're going to pay for that. And we're going to pay for that because the Democrats, one, one political party is not going to be in charge all the time. And I would prefer that science was funded every single term. I would prefer that science was funded for years to come, continuously funded for years, decades, and hopefully centuries. I would prefer that no matter who's on the ballot box, that science always wins. And so I believe it's a mistake that a lot of especially academic researchers are making in aligning more closely with the Democratic uh, platform and endorsing candidates. What this is doing, and my prime example of this is the March for Science. What this is doing is alienating people. It is not creating a broad base of support for science. So the March of Science, for example, uh, this happened shortly after the um, the inauguration of Donald Trump in 2016. He became president, um, and immediately, and, and part of his platform was was defunding science and anti science statements. And uh, justifiably, a lot of scientists were very upset about this and very worried. So they organized a march for science. You know, the slogan was uh, "Out of the lab and into the streets, get out there," uh, and and you know, protest the policies of this administration. So I believe that was a mistake because yes, scientists should be vocal. Yes, they should express their political views. And yes, we need more visibility of science. We need people to understand the value and importance of society, of science in society. But it was very transparently an anti 
Donald Trump an anti-Republican march, which by itself is okay. If you want to protest Donald Trump, go right ahead. If you want to protest Joe Biden, go right ahead. You know, have 10 of like, like that as part of our free political expression. And I do believe that scientists need to be more vocal uh, and have a voice in the political process. But because this march was so transparently anti-Republican, any Republican watching the news, watching the coverage, hearing about the March for Science, that did not convince them about the value and importance of science in their lives. It convinced them that science is a Democrat-aligned institution. And that therefore, if science is a Democrat-aligned institution, it's okay to vote against them because it's just one of the many things that that other party does that we don't support. And so that was the mistake. It it made it too, like almost too transparent and too naked. And that when scientists speak politically, we should seek, I believe, to serve the best interests of the nation, and we should seek to serve the interests of people who would typically vote against scientists. I would much rather build bridges, find out how can we connect to deep Republican voters? How can we connect to policymakers uh, who happen to be Republican, who serve on very important committees uh, or make uh, uh, policy statements? How do we reach those people and build bridges to them and communicate the importance and value of science to them in a way that they would understand and appreciate, rather than simply falling into the all-too-easy trap of dividing along political lines. But I think about like historically funding for, say, space exploration, that there were people on both sides of the aisle who were huge boosters of space exploration. And in general, you had people deep in Republican, deep in Democratic houses that were building bills together. In many cases, they were trying to allocate funding to their various districts, understandably. Um, and then the same thing goes for science. Like you, there, there didn't for the longest time feel like there was a bias one way or the other about whether or not the Hubble Space Telescope should be built or whether or mm-hmm. not we should. And, and, but that has definitely crept in. Um, and you talk about that in the book as well, the sort of the source of this. Maybe that's the next one we go into, I think. But, but um, you know, there are moneyed interests that are attempting to drive this. And you feel that, that a political response is, is the wrong one. But if, but if, you know, how do you respond to a political response without a political response? Yeah, I mean, it, I'm Canadian, it, it, so I don't, I don't know how yeah. any of this stuff works, right? <laughs> uh, absolutely. And so I, I believe that scientists are uh, making a mistake, uh, several mistakes. One of the mistakes of scientists and supporters and fans of science is actually not being political enough, ironically. Um, There's this culture, especially in academia, that scientists are outside of politics. We don't talk about that. We don't get messy. We don't get our hands dirty. I think that's the wrong approach because what happens is that the words of scientists and the voice of scientists are being taken from them and being used by politicians without 
the scientist's understanding or awareness or their own participation. I do believe that science has a seat at the table. I think the mistake is that on one hand, scientists are not being vocal enough. They are not participating enough. They are not sharing their views enough and especially sharing their passions and the role that science plays in society. I think the public needs to learn much more about that, that science isn't just a bunch of cool ideas. Science is actually a vitally important uh, pillar of our modern civilization. Most people do not make that connection, and I think they should. And the second is that when scientists do enter politics, they mix up the science views with the policy views. As an example, uh, climate change, which has been the topic surrounding climate change, has been the main driver uh, in the wedge, especially between conservatives and um, scientists. And yes, our earth is warming, it's getting warmer, and it's our fault. And yes, it's going to have devastating consequences. Absolutely. What we do about that is a very, very difficult question. And that's a question that in the United States, for example, over 300 million people need to agree on, or at least find some way to to build a, a consensus around so that we can make decisions about what to do about it. And of course, any response to climate change is going to impact some people and not impact others. It will impact people disproportionately. If we are going to solve climate change, we all have to pay some sort of price. No one wants to be the one left holding the bag. So of course, they are going to have strong opinions about who should pay the price to mitigate uh, the effects of climate change. That is is precisely why we have such a complex, multi-layered political decision-making process so that we can sort this out, so that different groups and different people can have their voice heard, so that we can elect our representatives, so that they can pass legislation, so that they could um, make these kinds of decisions. And thoughts or opinions or feelings about how well-functioning that system is aside, that is at least the ideal. And I believe what happened, particularly with climate scientists, is that they mixed up the science, which is legit, like we are totally messing up our planet and we should do something about it, with specific policy recommendations. And, that and is need- that sorry, is that very similar to sort of like what you saw with COVID? That you know, there was, you know, the the in night and day work by epidemiologists who are tracking yes. the the rise of this disease. They were passing along recommendations to public officials. Public officials were attempting to implement it, and it got messy. It got very messy and very ugly very quickly. I can't. I don't know if I would have done a better job than Fauci. Like that was an unpleasant and difficult and probably impossible position to be in uh, in any sort of public health official, but. Uh, what I saw, especially with COVID, and I saw echoes of this uh, with with the early climate change discussions, which was going beyond the bounds of the evidence. So, uh, for example, with climate change, do you remember like Al Gore's An Inconvenient Truth, you know, the PowerPoint that won a Nobel Prize? A lot of what he said was accurate and grounded in science. Also, a lot of the predictions he made, uh, you know, like the disasters that would befall us on certain timescales. 
um, that went beyond the bounds of the evidence. If you look at, say, climate projections over the next 10 or 20 years, uh, there's a very wide margin of what the Earth's temperature will look like. There's also a lot of uncertainty about what the specific effects will be. We actually, it's, it's very, very tough to predict the outcome of increased carbon output. And by laying out predictions, we open ourselves up to, to making a mistake. And I think in the early climate change discussion, there was a lot of like doom and gloom and we need to fix this now. And, you know, the polar bears are drowning, which they, which they are, but like they're drowning and they're going to start eating your kids. And there was, and then, and like, it was too much because it was mixed up with what we do about it. Mm -hmm. But I imagine, yeah. But, But I can imagine like the, like if you are attempting to, like if you prevent, you know, if you provide the research impassionate and go, okay, here you go, 1.5 degrees warming by 2024, uh, you know, do do with that what you will. Yeah, um, I'm not yeah exactly. About it. Like, like uh, and I think the climate scientists I've seen in the community over the past five to 10 years make this shift in messaging and making it much more personal and much more grounded in the evidence that we have. Like, hey, have you noticed that like winters are a lot more mild than they used to and there isn't as much snow? Um, that's not your imagination. Uh, we're actually, we know what causes that. Hey, have you noticed that there are a lot more wildfires than there used to be? Yeah, it's it's not your imagination. We actually know what's causing that. Have you noticed that hurricanes are stronger and more frequent? You, know, uh, it's, you can run down the list of the effects of climate change and use that to speak more personally to people. And I believe that's much more powerful than like a doom and gloom, uh, we're all going to die scenario. But, but like when you... Like, like if you go like right back to the heart of the term politics, right? Policy that mm-hmm. that you are saying we know we've measured this change in rising. We know what what the cause is. That that we think these are the implications, and now it's time for policy to deal with the implications. It's time for politics to agree on how they're going to respond. And I and I and I don't know how like that all feels inevitable to me. Whether it's epidemiologists saying we're looking at this many people are going to possibly die, someone has to figure out how to deal with this whether we wear masks or don't, that there are issues with global warming, we need to come up with effective policies. I I I don't know how you can both inform the public about the things that are that are possible that are probabilistic issues without it turning into a political conversation. And I, and like, I agree that I don't think things should be political, but I just, like, I just don't know how, because like I talk about how cool space is and I'm, you do too, right? We talk about how amazing the Andromeda galaxy is. And then people write nasty comments about how they wish we didn't get involved in politics. I, I and 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 it's this weird irony because I actually want scientists more involved in politics. I want us to have more of a voice, but I want us to be honest and I want us to speak as scientists so that someone says and I want I want more scientists to say I don't know or we don't know. Like, oh, if we do this, what are the effects going to be? We don't know. Uh or speak with all the usual caveats and uncertainties uh, that we use in scientific publications like, oh, well, assuming this and this, um, here's our projection. That's what we got. And of course, there are pressures 
outside pressures, people don't want the nuance. People don't want the complexity. They want it boiled down, yes or no, good idea or bad idea. And we as scientists have the freedom to remain silent. We can say, I'm, I'm not going to boil it down for you. I'm not going to pick A or B. I'm going to tell you what the caveats are and what the uncertainties are. And that is where I'm going to stop. And you can take it or leave it. So maintaining scientific integrity in our communications, for example, in, going back to the COVID-19 you know, This kind pandemic. of segues yeah. into the next part of the conversation though, doesn't it? Uh, yes. This, this aspect of like disdain and that scientists sometimes do act like know-it-alls. There was this um, line in the Oppenheimer movie that really, it really cut me deep. It, it was, uh, there was some comments like, oh, uh, physicists don't like it when you question their judgment, especially when you're not one of them. I was like, ouch, like that's, that hurt, but also it's kind of true. Um, there is I've witnessed this myself. I experienced my, this myself. There is this culture of superiority, of arrogance, of, of knowing the real answer that because we are scientists and we study nature deeply, therefore, we maybe we are capable of making these kinds of complex policy dis, uh, decisions and that we are capable, that we're smarter than the philosophers and the artists and the economics majors and you know everybody else and what we can make these decisions. This is... This is we we have so many examples from public scientists, you know, making these kinds of comments, you know, just trashing other disciplines, speaking down about people. And then, yeah, when it feels good when people come to you with questions and want you to have the answer, it that's a good sensation. It's kind of thrilling. And so it's very easy to fall into traps of, oh, okay, you want me to boil down and make, okay, let me use my, my super powered science brain and I will tell you the answer. And that gets us into traps and it got us into a lot of traps with COVID-19. And, and I think you see scientists who are, using say maybe their expertise in one field to then start to delve into other fields that they don't have any experience in with a high degree of certainty that is possibly unwarranted that of course there's more nuance i think you know you have actually done a remarkably restrained job of sticking <laughs> to cosmology and astrophysics and stuff and dance and, and dance. there is that and cheese. I, I i don't dance for the record uh right, i right, work right. with dance experts yeah. to do the yeah. dance i outsource and, the dancing i don't i do not have the arrogance to believe that i am right. a good dancer but cheese oh cheese i am not an i'm an amateur cheese enthusiast and i love cheese and i will yeah. eat any cheese you put in front of me uh even that one from sicily with maggots in it or whatever I, i'll give it a shot um Right. But, uh, but I am, I am also not a, a cheeseologist and I classify cheese by, um, their proximity to me, uh, which, you know, increases their desirability beyond that. I do not know much about the ins right. and outs of cheese. So, so I want to move on to the, the next one, which is just science communication. And, yeah. and, and this is sort of like the heart of, of what we both do now for our careers. Uh, how do you think that science communication is contributing to the problems that we have in, in science in general? 
yeah, we as scientists do not communicate with the public nearly enough. And I believe that this is leading to a lack of trust because people don't get to identify with science. They don't need to, they don't get to connect with science. They see the headlines, they see, uh, you know, the big splashy news, but they don't realize that a practicing working scientist is probably within their family and friend orbit. They are probably less than two steps away from like an actual practicing research scientist. Um, and so they don't build up personal connections with scientists. Then they don't understand where scientists are coming from. They don't understand our methodology. They don't understand how we arrive at our decisions. They see the big splashy stuff, which often contradicts, uh, you know, whatever was published a year ago. There's always headlines saying, you know, oh, it turns out the Big Bang was wrong. That happens like every year. Um, and they don't see how we arrive at our decisions. And that takes personal communication. That takes personal sharing. That takes revealing of scientists' personal passion about their work which doesn't happen nearly enough. And it doesn't happen because scientists have absolutely no incentives to do it. If you want to get promoted, if you want tenure, if you want grants, one of the last things you can do is communicate your science to the public. At best, it will be treated as a neutral and more likely than not, it will be to your detriment because a, a committee panel will say, oh, you communicate science a little bit too much. You should pull back on that. We're not going to give you tenure, period. Uh, and that's horrible and that's awful. And of course, people are finding it harder and harder to uh, trust a scientist because we are closing ourselves off more and more. We're not seen as human beings who are flawed, who are um, complex, who are working on interesting projects, who have a passion, who are following a very specific methodology to approach problem solving, and uh, how our methodology is only applicable to a small subset of our natural human experience, but that's what makes it so powerful. People don't get to see that, and so we're like aliens living in universe universities that um, you know make pronouncements every once in a while that don't make any sense. I had graduated from high school uh, and was starting to begin my education at UBC for, for engineering. And I picked up on a whim Carl Sagan's uh, Demon Haunted World, which you, you mentioned in the book. And I finally, for the first time, deeply understood the way the scientific process worked. And, and it was sort of like a new lens, a new way of looking at the kinds of, of research that was being talked about, about the amount of uncertainty that's involved, how it's all an unfolding process, how I don't know is a perfectly acceptable answer to many yeah. of the questions that we, that we face. And I think I've like, I say, I don't know all the time. You say, I don't know all the time, but I think a lot of people, when they communicate the stuff, even if they don't know they give an answer that, that gives off that they do know the answer. And yep. when inevitably things switch around and it turns out that you thought coffee was good for you, now coffee's bad for you, oh, now coffee's good for you again, it's that it's that whipsaw. Yep. And or as, as a bigger, even bigger example, uh, the whole COVID vaccine experience, uh, the vaccine is powerful. I'm I'm double or triple vaxxed or whatever. I also got COVID like 18 times. Uh, so I'm like, I'm invincible now. Right, right, right. Um, You're half COVID. Um, <laughs> I'm half COVID. Half my DNA is now COVID. Um, 
I the vaccine was overpromised. It was promised as take this injection and COVID will be gone. It will be a memory. And yes, the 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 vaccine was a, a miracle in a shot. It it saved countless lives. It also did not eliminate COVID. And so when we came around with Omicron in the months following and we're like, wait a minute, we all got vaccinated, but we're still getting sick. What is going on? COVID didn't go away. That's And people were upset with that because I believe that the vaccine was overpromised. We went beyond the bounds of the evidence. We could have stuck to it and said, hey, if you take this vaccine, your chance of dying will be very, very low. You should do it. Uh, right. It's and like then a flu vaccine. Question, yeah. And then well, what will happen to COVID? Will COVID go away? The answer, the correct answer to that was, I don't know. Right. Yeah. I don't know. We've seen some examples where the vaccine completely eliminates the disease. And we've seen other examples where the vaccine decreases the severity of the illnesses. And, yep. but we're stuck with it year after year, like the flu. Like, yep, exactly. RSV. And the data we have right now says we don't know. And that's the best we can say. But it, yep. was, it was instead sold as, this will, won't just save your life. It will make COVID completely go away and you never have to think about it again. And so uh, there's like two parts that I think. There's this resistance by scientists to even do the communication in the first place because there's absolutely no incentive to do so. In fact, there's a negative incentive to do so. They are punished by many institutions. And I, you know, I have a bunch of my favorite scientists slash science communicators. And I keep asking them this question is, is it better yet? And they're like, nope, still the same. And then there is an unwillingness to reveal the full complexity and nuance that is required to appreciate the scientific process of, of saying, I don't know. Yeah. And, and I think, I think scientists need a lot of bravery. Also, we need to restructure our incentives within academia and any kind of scientific enterprise, however it's organized. We need to incentivize outreach and communication because guess what? If you make scientists do it, they'll probably do it. It might be bad at first, but they'll get better. These are supposedly some of the uh, brightest minds on the planet. They can, they can figure it out. I have confidence in my fellow scientists. Uh, we can figure it out and how to do it and how to express uncertainty, how to express how do we arrive at scientific consensus? How do we approach evidence gathering? How, why do we have so many caveats when we, when we publish a paper? What, what are the significance of those? Um, I think we could do a better job and it starts with doing it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But, but being encouraged to do it, trained to do it, understanding the value of, of what it places in society so that it's not people who are either they can't help themselves but communicate science because they go yeah. crazy if they didn't or people who are you know people like me who are just a journalist right that I'm helping to to do the communication and if more scientists were able to to do that work then I'd be out of a job uh, yes, would, which would be unfortunate for you personally, but I think a net benefit for society. Um, I gladly if, do it. Uh, and yeah. actually, honestly, there's enough room. There's enough room for journalists yeah, and and specific and more scientists to speak more openly about their work. What I want, my dream scenario, is for the public 
to un, to trust science, not because we are scientists and we have PhDs, but trust science because they understand the process and they understand our decision making and they understand how we arrive at conclusions. So that when we say something and we say, here is a statement, here are the uncertainties, here are the nuances, that there is enough, enough trust that people can accept that message for what it is. What's your last issue? Uh, the last issue was um, the terrible state of diversity in science and um, how we are doing a horrible, horrible job of finding talent amongst diverse communities and promoting them up and getting them on the track they need to be successful scientists. Uh, we um, Blacks, African-Americans, Latinos, Native Americans in the United States. I, I focus the book mainly on the United States because that's where I have my data. That's where I have surveys and numbers uh, to base my arguments on, uh, are horribly underrepresented in the sciences. And the vast majority of young Black, Native, Latino, minority populations, all those kids uh, do not believe that science is a viable career path for them, and they're right. Um, and this is heartbreaking on multiple levels. And also at a, um, it's like heartbreaking on a personal, like human level. And it's also heartbreaking on a grand strategy. You know, we want the best minds and brightest minds, you know, in our, in our halls of academia, you know, working on these problems. Um, I always wonder how many Einsteins are we leaving behind? You know, how many absolutely brilliant kids are primed to be amazing scientists, but don't even have that option available to them uh, because of societal circumstances and also because us as scientific institutions we do not find them. We are not proactive. We are not hiring them. We are not making viable career paths for them. Uh, we are making it hard for them every step of the way. Um, and so they end up not even approaching science as a field. And then we are missing out on those brilliant minds. And that I just wonder what we could have had if we were more proactive about diversity earlier on. And you think about how issues affect different communities. And they require yeah. a scientific response to this issue. And yet, if certain communities don't aren't represented in the scientists' work, then they're not going to get the same kind of evaluation. And the and the clever solutions aren't going to come. They come from the people who have lived the experience. They know what the problems are. They've they've lived it, and they can incorporate cl clever solutions or interesting hypotheses in their work. You know, it's like you write yeah. write what you know. You know when when exactly because right? it's not because it, it's not about the 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 color of a person's skin. It's about what that color represents as a human being, their lived experience, their background, their cultural identity, the way they think about things, the way they approach things. I want a diversity of minds in the scientific enterprise so that we can tackle long-standing old problems um, with some fresh perspectives and so that we can discover some new problems. Um, in the medical community, you know, how long has it taken for women's health to be taken seriously? Because most medical research was performed by men on male uh, bodies uh, with male volunteers, you know, focused on male health. And it's taken decades for women's health to be to be approach uh, parity with our understanding of men's health, simply because there weren't enough women doctors, you know, doing the research. So 
you spend a, this entire book essentially identifying what you see as the problems. Um, and you spend very little time on on solutions. You have a bunch of like, you know, here's an idea here, here's an idea there. Um, did you did you have to resist that urge? Did you? I, I, I don't know. I would push back on that characterization. Uh, one of the major changes uh, in the several rounds of revisions over the past few years has been to place a greater emphasis on, uh, on proposed solutions. And I tried to balance each chapter roughly um, one quarter of the chapter setting up the problem, uh, diagnosing it, uh, half the chapter discussing, you know, the, the negative outcomes and where we go. And then the last quarter of every chapter talking about solutions. So I talk about the need to, uh, have higher standards when it comes to approaching fraud, uh, how we need to be proactive with diversity, how we need to just force our fellow scientists to communicate more and that we can, if they're not going to force themselves, we can write it into grants. We can write it into fundraising, uh, funding expectations, um, a calling on scientists and fans of science and lovers of science uh, to be more honest when they enter into political discussions and speak from the heart about their scientific views, but include the uncertainties and being brave enough to say, I don't know. Um, we need to be more proactive with our students and graduate students. We need to be honest with them and more transparent about them, about their actual career prospects. Uh, I talk about grant funding, how we should just, um, at a certain level, just randomize it. Uh, like once you pass a certain th threshold, just make it a lottery. That'd be way more fair than this uh, horrible system that we have now. Um, we should favor younger scientists with grant funding over older ones. We should uh, have more high risk, high reward projects funded. It should be a greater percentage of our portfolio and how we need to train policymakers that this should be the expectation. That, that results are not guaranteed in science and that we need to communicate back to the public. We need to complete the circle to sh teach them that most science ends up being a bad idea or a wrong idea. And that's not only fine, that is what we want because it's only by having 10 bad ideas or wrong ideas that we find the one right idea. And so we need to support all those ideas in order to hit on that one. But I, I guess for me, it feels like Determining the response to the problems you identified requires a scientific response, that there are a whole bunch of ideas that have been proposed, not, and not just by you, but by the Absolutely. thousands of people who you interact with on a regular basis. There are a lot of ideas, and a lot of ideas have been tested to some degree or another, but not in this like, let's solve this problem. And so it would be really interesting to me to sort of see how could we approach this policy issue scientifically and say, okay, does randomizing the grants give you the increased outcome that you're hoping for? Does mm -hmm. increasing more funding into for science communication, does that do the trick? Does, you know, tracking the hiring prospects, incur, you know, have more people find jobs when they go through a program. So it'd be in interesting to know, like this is a, I mean, the problems require a scientific response. And yes. even just by doing that, it turns into, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a self-fulfilling Let's do prophecy, it. Like right? I, I will be the first to say, I don't know if any of my proposed solutions will work. I yeah. do not know. 
Yeah. Um, right there. I don't know. I don't know. I, but I do know what we have been doing for the past 30 years is definitely not working. So we definitely need to do something else. And here are some ideas for something else. Let's give it a shot. If it turns out I'm wrong, okay, fine, I'm wrong. And this will never work. And science is always going to be uh, you know, underfunded and contentious. But I have a hunch that this will work if we commit to it. But let's give it a shot and let the evidence decide. Well, what do you think it would look like if it was working well? Like, What do you think a society would feel like if science had its appropriate place in our culture? I think, um, uh, ironically, I don't think the funding situation would change much. I don't think it'd, it'd be there. There'd be like 10 times more funding for science. I think those funding for science would be seen uh, year after year as an essential component of, science, of, of our society, and it would hardly be even debated. Like, of course, the NSF, NASA, and okay, they get all their budgets and we're going to raise them every year because we raised overall budgets. Uh, it's just like a matter of course, and it's hardly debated. I would see in that ideal world, I would see far fewer scientific publications, certainly not 5.1 million (laughs) made every year. Uh, There'd be a lot. Research would be a lot slower. We would take our time. We would stamp out fraud. Any instances of fraud would be met with actual firing um, and loss of tenure, which uh, actually rarely happens, surprisingly. I would see fewer science headlines. I would see fewer science um, news stories because there's less science being done, but what comes out is higher quality, is longer term, more structured, more careful research done by scientists. And then what is communicated to the public becomes you know, more secure, more interesting, more boundary pushing, um, more revelatory about the universe. And then there is more open dialogue about science and that scientists have a seat at the policymaking table seen as a valuable provider of information and guidance and wisdom, um, not as a source of decision-making authority, but as a trusted, trusted source where we do these annual polls of the American population and trust in scientists skyrockets and it just stays there. That is what I want. Sounds good. The book is a Sickness in Science. Do you have a copy of it handy? Have they given you a proof oh, oh, yet? So, uh, yes, they have. I'll go grab it. It's right over here. They sent me, oh, and we've had a, a, a change in title. It's Rescuing Science, Restoring Trust in an Age of Doubt. This is what is available on Amazon right now. And on my website, you can pre-order autographed copies from my website, pmsutter.com. I like that title better. Yes, it works. I I actually, when they proposed it, I said, yeah, I like it. And that went along with the change in focus uh, to put a lot more emphasis on uh, solutions. All right. Well, thanks, Paul. Great to talk to you as always. Now, if but all the other stuff you're doing, if people want a regular Paul Matt Sutter dose, where do they get the uh, the information? You get the feed from my website, pmsutter.com. Also follow me on social, uh, primarily Instagram these days. I'm at Paul Matt Sutter. Uh, there are links, updates about any events I'm doing, uh, links to articles I write, uh, all that good stuff. And your podcast. Oh, my podcast, askaspaceman.com, a long-running podcast, wonderful community there, and I'd love it for anyone listening to join that community. People ask me questions, and then I get to pretend to know the answer. 
Awesome. But when All I right. don't know, I say I don't know. <laughs> I mean it. Yeah, yeah, Awesome. All right. Well, thanks, man. It's always great to talk to you. Good luck with the book. <gasps> Thank you so much, Fraser. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Dr. Paul Sutter. And if you haven't already, go join his YouTube channel, subscribe to his podcast, check out his website. Uh, you know, Paul's been a friend for years and years and years. And I, you know, I really trust he comes on this channel regularly and helps explain particle physics to me. So uh, I think you should definitely go and follow what he's doing. Now, I'm going to give you some more thoughts about sort of this interview. But first, I'd like to thank our patrons. Thanks to Paul Rohrbach, Abe Kingston, Hey Twilight, Dougie Stewart, Stephen Krasaki, David Richards, Mark Anstis, Joel Yancey, and Tony Lofilara, Dustin Cable, Vlad Chiplin, Monzo, George, David Gilton, Andrew Gross, Jeremy Matter, Josh Schultz, and Jordan Young, who support us at the Master of the Universe level and all of our other supporters on Patreon. This is a tricky problem, and we find ourselves in this time when you can just feel this public trust in science that is eroding. And, and just like a trust in expertise in general. And as a person who is such a fan of science and space specifically, it's heartbreaking to see the work of researchers be sort of dragged through the mud. People are creating, flooding the zone with content. There's all kinds of moneyed interests that are attempting to uh, drag it down. But as Paul says, like there is some role that science has to play in improving its standing with the public. And, you know, many of the issues that Paul identifies in the book, I, I see where he's coming from. And I think it would be useful to figure out ways that we can address how many careers there are in the field of science, how work is done to make sure that it is the highest quality possible, how we can improve the way this information is communicated out to the public and how we can get a more diverse set of voices that are working in the sciences that better match the needs of our planet. And so I think if any of this, if you're in the field of science or if you are sort of concerned about this, I think you'll probably get a lot out of Paul's book. Now, as I mentioned, I've talked to Paul quite a bit here on this channel. Uh, so I'm going to link to a couple of videos where he explains particle physics uh, information to me. Uh, check that out now. Thanks. We'll see you next time.